Brethren, it's good and a privilege for me to be among you once again. And I know this is the season for illness and all kinds of things. And um, I've had my share as well. And bear with me if I cough a little here and there. But, um, <clears throat> but as we uh, will consider this hour, make sure the time. And I should finish at 1045, I believe. Is I'm, am I right about the time? OK. I go to different churches, and some of the times are different, so I, I like to double check to be sure. OK. <clears throat> well, let us once again pray <clears throat> and ask for God's help as we come to consider this very critical book, the book of Jude. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, once again, we come before you acknowledging our utter need of your help. Lord, we are not here to check off a box that we merely attended a service or that we've taught a lesson, but Lord, we ask that you would draw near by your Holy Spirit and that you would speak to each of us. <clears throat> You've brought us together this day and we have gathered together in the name of Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would draw near and have mercy upon us all. We ask and pray for your help and your grace. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I would ask that you would turn with me to the book of Jude. Quick way to find it is go to the book of Revelation and one book back. It's a very small letter, easy to pass, especially if the pages are stuck together. One book before the book of Revelation. <clears throat> it's really just a, a, it's a, it's a letter as the others are letters, but it's very brief. There's no chapters, really it's just one chapter, but a very significant letter for us today. Okay, before we get to the um, <clears throat> statement of purpose, I want us to, <clears throat> by way of introduction, just look at the authorship of the letter. It is uh, written by Jude, as we see in verse 1, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, <clears throat> this Jude, or the name Judas, was the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, one of the children of Joseph and Mary after Jesus was born. <clears throat> and here he says, now we know this because he says he's the brother of James, who is also a half-brother of the Lord Jesus. Um, Jesus, Joseph was not Jesus' father. As you know, as we've, we've just come out of the Christmas season, um, Jesus, his father, is God in heaven. And Jesus had no biological earthly father. Um, Mary was betrothed to Joseph, and <clears throat> they were both descendants in the, of the tribe of Judah. And <clears throat> but Mary was um, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and not by infidelity with another man. 
And <clears throat> this is how the Son of God, who always existed from all eternity, came into the world. You know the words in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we read, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so that process of the Word becoming flesh was the Holy Spirit <clears throat> working in bringing the Son of God into the womb of Mary. And there for that nine-month period of gestation and development, there the Son of God, who is God, who existed from all eternity, acquired humanity to himself, right? But when he became a man, he never stopped being God. He continued to be God. He acquired humanity to himself, but his humanity was not mixed up with his deity like a scrambled egg. But those two natures were distinct and separate, but they were there in one person. So the baby that was expelled from the womb was both God and man, hence the Son of God, the Christ, the Lord Jesus. But after Jesus' birth, Joseph and Mary had other children. And, and Jude is one of those other children, as well as James, the book of James. Uh, James was a prominent leader in the church um, in Jerusalem. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. <clears throat> Actually, Galatians chapter 1. <clears throat> now, Paul, in the book of Galatians, in this section we're going to look at, he's in a sense giving his testimony of how God saved him and how God worked in his life when he became a new believer and how God taught him the truths of the gospel. And he makes, about, he makes reference to his um, interaction with Cephas and James, the brother of the Lord. And um, <clears throat> I'll just stop at verse, start at verse 15, just to get the flow of thought. Galatians chapter 1, <clears throat> beginning in verse 15. Paul speaking, But when it was the good pleasure of God who separated me, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Immediately <clears throat> I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them that were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. And again I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Cephas is also Peter, the apostle. And I remained with him 15 days. <clears throat> but other of the apostles I saw none except James, the Lord's brother. Now, <clears throat> this is not James of the sons of Zebedee. James and John, those are the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. That James was martyred in Acts chapter 12 by the sword of Herod. 
You read when Peter was arrested in the book of Acts, and, and they, well, first of all, they had slew James. James was killed by the sword, and then they went to get Peter as well. And you read, remember the story, Peter was arrested, the church was praying, Rhoda knocked on the door and said, hey, Peter is out, the angels released, got him out of prison, etc. But on that occasion, James, the sons, the brother of John, he was slain. So this is a different James. James, the Lord's brother. Now, <clears throat> this James had prominence in the church in Jerusalem. He was a leader. He had a high profile and he was recognized. And if you look over in chapter 2, and I'll just start at verse 7, jumping in. <clears throat> Paul continuing on. He says, but contrary wise, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel of the uncircumcision, even as Peter and the gospel of circumcision, for he that wrought for Peter unto the apostleship of the circumcision wrought for me also to the Gentiles. It is God appointed Peter to minister to the, to the Jews and God had appointed Paul to minister to to the Gentiles. And when they perceive <clears throat> that the grace that was given to me, James, there it is again, James, who had a high profile, and Cephas, that is Peter, and John, they who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcision, that is, to the Jews. Only they would that we should remember the poor, which very thing I was zealous to do. And then he goes on, but when Cephas came <clears throat> to Antioch, that is Peter, I resisted him to the face, that is he rebuked Peter, because he stood condemned. For before that certain came from James, that is James, the half-brother of the Lord, who was at Jerusalem, <clears throat> Jews that came from James, and they ate with the Gentiles. But when they came, he, that is Peter, drew back and separated himself, fearing them that were of the circumcision. Now, just a little bit of you, like what's going on, James, Peter. Um, Peter was a Jew, was Jewish. They were fellowshipping with the Gentiles. Peter was eating with the Gentiles, all was well. But when these Jews came from Jerusalem, from James, other Jews came, Peter got up, separated himself from the Gentiles, and went to sit with the Jews. And Paul saw this and said, Peter, you're being inconsistent. And Paul rebuked Peter to his face about that. That's what Paul is talking about. He rebuked Peter because, Peter, you're acting inconsistent with the gospel. The gospel is not merely for the Jews is for Jews and Gentiles, and the Gentiles are our brethren. And Peter, you should not be ashamed to be seen eating with Gentiles, it, uh, be seen by other Jews, see you eating with Gentiles. Peter, you shouldn't let that be, bother you. And so that's what Paul is talking about. But the point in reading these references here is just showing you the profile that James, the half-brother of the Lord, had. And Jude is, as we go back to Jude, <clears throat> Jude 
introduces himself, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. James was a significant leader, and by identifying himself with James, the readers would know who Jude was. And so that's the introduction where you get an idea of who Jude is. There are other references, but we won't have time to go into a lot of things um, this morning in depth. So the identity of the author, Jude, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, who is the brother of James, and he writes, to them that are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy to you and peace and love be multiplied. And just another uh, quick note, when they wrote letters in these days, they usually identify themselves and the recipients at the very beginning of the letter. We write a letter or business memo, and then we identify ourselves at the end. Right? At the bottom, we entered by you know, Kenneth Harris, et cetera, et cetera. Here, <clears throat> he begins Jude with his name, identifying himself, and then those to whom he writes, to them that are called beloved of God. And, and he gives a, a wish or a desire that they would receive mercy and peace, etc. Now, let's get to the first point of our lesson here this morning. <clears throat> what we see here at the beginning here, when Jude begins this letter, he gives a statement of purpose. A statement of purpose. He gives the purpose for writing this letter in verses 3 and 4. What we're going to do, we're going to walk through the letter, you know, and in order as we have it. And then we'll, I'll comment and explain some things as we go along and apply some lessons. So I think that's a, a good way to go about this. So first of all, we have a statement of purpose. Verse 3. <clears throat> he writes, Beloved, while I was giving all diligence to write to you of our common salvation, I was constrained to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. Now, this is interesting. Jude <clears throat> was intending to write about a certain topic. Namely, our common salvation. And Jude wasn't sitting down thinking, oh, what should I write? Maybe I'll write about our common salvation. And he said, oh, but no, that, that wasn't his attitude. He says he was giving all diligence. In other words, he purposed with all his heart. He wanted to write about this topic. He gave all diligence. It wasn't haphazard, it wasn't on the fly, but he had all purpose and intention to write to them about their common salvation, that is, the blessings of what we have in Christ, the blessings of being a believer that God has given to us. He wanted to write about that. However, he says, I was constrained to write about something else. I was constrained to write unto you, to exhort you, to contend earnestly for the faith. 
different subjects, right? I wanted to write about our common salvation, but I was constrained to write that we should fight and not physical fight and not fighting with carnal weapons, but to contend, to strive, to contend earnestly for the faith. Now here you have an example of how the scriptures are inspired of God. Scriptures, <clears throat> the letters, what we read in the Bible, <clears throat> men just didn't write just their ideas and their thoughts about things. Jude was constrained, and I suggest to you he was constrained by the Spirit of God. <clears throat> he was redirected to write about a different topic. And that different topic we have included in the canon of Scripture that we are considering this morning. And the content of this letter of Jude is vital and is relevant to God's people in every age. And so the Spirit of God directed Jude to write the things that he wrote <clears throat> for our benefit, as well as those who hear. If you turn with me to Second um, Peter, I mean, First Peter. First Peter. I'm sorry, Second Peter. Second Peter. Second Peter. Now Peter is about to go to his death, and so he's writing, reminding his hearers of things they've already know, but he he doesn't apologize for reminding them. And then he says, <clears throat> verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1, we read this. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So here he's saying is that, you know, when we spoke to you about the coming of Jesus what he did, what he accomplished. We were eyewitnesses. We didn't make this stuff up. We didn't follow cleverly devised fables, things that are myths and fantasies. No, we were eyewitnesses and we saw his majesty. And then Peter's going to make reference to an incident when Jesus took Peter, James, and John, James, that is, son of Zebedee, brother of John, to the Mount, what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus went up there to pray. He had those three disciples. You can read of it in, um, in Matthew chapter 17. And Jesus was transfigured before him. It wasn't that his face was distorted and became something else, <clears throat> but his face became bright, bright as the sun, as it were. And the disciples couldn't look upon his face. And there was a voice they heard out of heaven, and also that appeared on that occasion was Moses and Elijah. Moses, representative of the law, Elijah, representative of the prophets, and Jesus. Those three were there. And Peter saw it, and Peter was excited. And then <clears throat> there was a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved son here 
him. And then when they looked up, they saw no one else but Jesus. And there on that Mount of Transfiguration, they saw something of his glory. The veil was pulled back, and they saw his glory. Uh, remember, he's God and man. And they saw something of his deity burst forth, reflected on his countenance, something they've never seen before. <clears throat> and there, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, but Jesus is superior to Moses and the prophets. And so what God is saying from heaven to the apostles, this is my beloved son, hear him. This one is superior. His authority is far greater than Moses or Elijah. And he is supreme. And so that's what Peter says. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now look at verse 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory, which was born when there was born such a voice to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice we ourselves heard born out of heaven when we were with him in the holy mount. Peter says, I was there. I heard it. And we have the word of prophecy made more sure, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. And he's speaking about the written word of scripture. <clears throat> we heard this voice out of heaven, but we have something that is sure that is even more sure for the church and for God's people. Verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is a private interpretation. For no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but, but men spoke from God being moved by the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want you to see there. He's speaking about prophecy, the word of God. They heard God's voice audibly with their own ears. But Peter says we have something more sure. We have written. We have the word of prophecy made sure as it is uh, reduced to writings. The Old Testament, the New Testament, and even the letter that Peter was writing there as an apostle. No scripture ever came by the will of man. By the will of man, but men spoke from God, being moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, it was Jude's will to write about our common salvation. But it was God's will that Jude write about us contending for the faith. Remember, Jude is writing to the people of God. And God wants Jude to write what he wants the people of God to know at that period, at that time. And so here again we see how men, they spoke, and I would say also written, being moved by the Holy Spirit. So back to Jude. <clears throat> back, back to Jude. You see the inspiration of Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16, and is profitable for teaching, training, and righteousness, etc. It is God-breathed. Okay. So we're reading and studying the scriptures. 
Now, I underscore this, and I should let me just do this here, because <clears throat> as we read on, we're going to read some strange things. That, that, uh, something from the, the Enoch made this prophecy and the devil disputing about the body of Moses and these things that you say, well, I've not seen that in the Old Testament. And, <clears throat> and some writers with the content that is in here, and I'm going to try to be brief with this, the content, some of the content in the book of Jude is um, similar to content written in the Apocrypha. Now, Apocrypha are ancient books that were written, some during the first century, during the time when the New Testament was written, written and <clears throat> some regard those books as um, being authoritative, also inspired by God, the Roman Catholic Church. They had the Apocrypha, and they had this various list of books that are not included in the canon of Scripture. And so some, when they read the book of Jude, because Jude says things that are similar to what is said in the Apocrypha, he doesn't say a lot, but there are a few things in this letter that are similar. The language is similar. Some would say that, well... <clears throat> because Jude is writing things that are similar to what's in the Apocrypha, and if some people say, well, the Apocrypha is inspired of God, then they're saying that the book of Jude confirms that the Apocrypha is divinely inspired. Some would have that view. Others would have the view and say, no, the Apocrypha is not inspired by God, so the book of Enoch or the Assumption of Moses, these books are not divinely inspired. And if Jude is using references from the Apocrypha, then the book of Jude is not inspired by God. So some can take the argument that way. And this was something that, was, that divided some of the early church fathers. Um, they were divided over this point. However, and I, I won't quote, I have the quote by Linsky, but we don't have a lot of time, but... Lenski is very helpful, um, R-H-E, Lenski. I forget the first letters of his um, first two names. But Lenski, he's a Lutheran commentator, and also Kistemacher, Simon Kistemacher, were both very helpful in this point. And so <clears throat> the thing is, and that's why I emphasize what I said at the beginning, Lenski said that, in essence, Jude is not quoting from the Apocrypha. Jude is quoting what Enoch actually said. So he's not relying upon the Apocrypha. And Kistemacher said, well, Jude may be quoting, he believes that he is quoting from the Apocrypha, but he said, because the Spirit of God can take words, even if it's written in other documents, and the Spirit of God can use things that are written in other documents and that are incorporated in the Holy Scripture, and it becomes divinely authoritative because what is recorded in Scripture is true. If Jude quoted from the Apocrypha, then whatever material he pulled out from the Apocrypha, it doesn't mean all of the Apocrypha is divinely inspired, but maybe some of that information is true. Let me give you another example of what I'm trying to say here. 
Let's go to the Gospel of John, because I probably opened a can of worms. <laughs> Let's go to the Gospel of John. <clears throat> so <clears throat> the thing is, is that things that were written in the Apocrypha, some of those things may have been true, but the Apocrypha as a whole is not a divinely inspired document. John chapter 21, I'm going to give you a principle to help you and to help me as well. John 21, and this is John the Apostle, he writes, <clears throat> verses 24 and 24. John says, this is the disciple that bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness in tr is true. So John is saying what he wrote in his gospel, he was a witness of these things. This is the disciple. He's speaking about himself. I was a witness of the things that Jesus said and done. Now note verse 25. And there are also many other things which Jesus did. The which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that should be written. So there were other things that Jesus did. And if someone in the crowd witnessed Jesus doing miracles, and maybe they have written down, like, you know, you keep a journal about, well, today I saw this, et cetera. <clears throat> there may have been other things that Jesus have done that are true, that are not recorded in Scripture. Because John is saying, there's not enough books in the world to contain everything that he did. So maybe there could be some other books where other people have written down, took note, maybe been local historians of the things that Jesus did, and they were true, but they're not included in the canon of Scripture. And even if they wrote those things down that were true, it doesn't mean that is now a divinely inspired document. They wrote down what Jesus did, and it was true, but it's not divinely inspired. And so <clears throat> that's the principle here with the Apocrypha, there may have been things in the Apocrypha, some things that are true, other things that may have been, you know, not true or fanciful. But Jude, what he says in his letter that is <clears throat> similar to what is said in the Apocrypha, and by the way, he doesn't quote the, the Apocrypha. He's not saying, as the Apocrypha says. He's not a quoting. They knew how to quote from the Old Testament. He's not saying that he's quoting from the Apocrypha. But the point is, is that what Jude wrote is true. The devil disputing about the body of Moses, it is true, brethren. Don't hesitate to embrace it to be true. And don't be, um, you know, unsettled to think, well, it's not written in the Old Testament. Well, Everything that was done was not recorded in Scripture. And there are things that the writers make reference to, like Paul makes reference to Jannes and Jambres. That's not found in the Scripture. They're believed to be magicians of Pharaoh. But Paul says how Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses. You won't find that in the Old Testament. But it's true. There are other things. There are many things... That is not, it doesn't mean that the Bible is not sufficient, that come somehow we need to search these other books to get to know 
The Bible is sufficient and is not to be added to, and God's word is enough for faith and practice. So I'm just underscoring the fact and maybe provoke you to further study, and we can talk about some things if you like afterwards. But I'm just assuring you that the book of Jude is a divinely inspired document. Remember, he wanted to write about one thing, but he was constrained to write about something else constrained by the spirit of God and men did not write out of their own will out of the stuff of their own mind but they were guided by the Holy Spirit so I say that to inform you to strengthen your faith and so that we would profit from this very small but very significant letter of Jude so so that's why I spent the time there so Let's go on to the statement of purpose, and now I have just five minutes to try to do a lot of stuff here. Um, I have another hour, so we can uh, merge the two into one later on. So, <clears throat> so Jude, is, he was constrained <clears throat> to write that they should contend earnestly for, the, earnestly for the faith. Now, what is the reason? Verse 4. Verse 4 of Jude there's no chapters, but Jude would just say verse 4. For there are certain men crept in privily or privately or secretly, even they who were of old written of beforehand unto this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. And denying our master, our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That is the reason why God redirected Jude to write about contending for the faith. While yes, they can talk about their common salvation, nothing wrong with that. But this was not the time. Because at this time, there was a great threat to the people of God. There were ungodly men who infiltrated the ranks of God's people, they gave a credible testimony, and so they were there among the people of God, but they were ungodly men. They were wicked men. (coughs) And here, the description of their um, ungodliness is described as turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. The grace of God into lasciviousness. Now, that's a lasciviousness. You said, well, what's lasciviousness? We don't use that in our conversation. You can understand that they turned the grace of God, they tried to anyway, a license for immorality. One of my daughters just got her driver's license, her driver's license. She took the written test. She took the road test. And I see some of you young men, I don't know if you have your license or you're working on it, but... It is an exciting thing, especially for a young man, a younger woman, to get a driver's license. What does that mean? You are now authorized to drive a vehicle on the road. You got to have insurance and other things, but you have a license to drive. Now, what they were seeking to do is turning the grace of God into a license. And really, the word is very strong here. A license for unbridled living. 
from unbridled immorality. A license to sin with a high hand without any restraint. That's the sense of the word. They wanted to turn the grace of God into that. And you know, Paul addressed some of that where some would say, well, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, if we sin more, then we can see more of God's grace. And that's a good thing, isn't it? If you can see more grace, no, it's not a good thing. If you want to continue in sin and engage in sinful acts so that you can manifest the grace of God, Paul said, may it never be. And so that's what they were trying to do is turning the grace of God into insurance. Insurance is to protect you from calamity and hardship. They wanted the grace of God to be like insurance to protect you from going to hell. Even though you engage in so much sin and live with uh, unbridled, unrestrained, abandoned in sin, they wanted to turn the grace of God into something that will keep you from going into hell. And this is believed to be um, incipient Gnosticism, or what later became Gnosticism. And uh, I'm going to really end here in, a, in about a minute, so we're going to have to try to be creative for the next hour. But <clears throat> Gnosticism, it was a Platon, you know, Plato, this Platonic duality, where they view the material world as evil and wicked, so the body was really corrupt. But the thing that was pure was the spirit. So therefore, this philosophy said whatever you did with your body was inconsequential to your spirit. And that's why they believe you can live in such an immoral life and do all kinds of things with the body. But they say, but it doesn't affect the soul. You see, that is a lie from the devil. And, <clears throat> and so they had that mindset, and it is believed that this is the beginnings of that um, Gnostic philosophy where it's the body is just a shell so do what you want with it but the soul is untouched and that's why they and that's why they deny the lord jesus they say come on god could not come in the flesh the flesh is corrupt how can the divine being become a man so they rejected the incarnation of the lord jesus as well because of this philosophy well we're going to stop here and um we're going to pray Lord willing, we pray for grace that God will help us to wrap this up in the next hour. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this introduction as we consider this book of Jude. And we pray, Lord, that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that guided Jude, that you would guide us in our preaching, in our hearing of this material, to the praise and glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.